Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Religion, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lindsay Jackson. In recent decades, the number of Americans and Canadians who identify as non-religious has risen considerably, with nearly one quarter of American and Canadian adults identifying as non-religious, religious nuns represent a sizable and growing group within the Canadian and American populations. In their recent book, None of the Above, Non-Religious Identity in the U.S. and Canada, Joel Thiessen and Sarah Wilkins-Laflamme examine this phenomenon and the implications of the growing religious nun population in North America. Joel Thiessen is Professor of Sociology at Ambrose University in Calgary, Alberta, and Sarah Wilkins-Laflamme is Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology and Legal Studies at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. Hi, Sarah and Joel, and welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, great to be here. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for having us. I'm wondering if you could describe the origins of this project. What made you want to write a book about non-religious identity in Canada and the U.S.? Well, in the early 2010s, both Sarah and I were working on projects on religious nuns. I was doing some qualitative work. Sarah was doing some quantitative work. And we came across one another's work in that process. And uh, we met at a conference in Ontario in, I think it was 2014, and uh, I think we, we soon discovered that our work could uh, collectively be stronger if we had pursued collaborative work. And so that really laid the seeds for this book. And I would say there was really five things that stood out to us in the literature that we could try to speak to, and these are the kinds of things we try to do in this, in this book. Uh, one of the first things was that uh, we know that different types of disaffiliation and irreligious socialization play a role in the growth of those who say they have no religion. But we have very little information on the biographic pathways into becoming a religious nun and how those are impacted by different social environments. And so we thought, you know, with our qualitative and quantitative data, we could really lean into these questions and expand some of the literature. I would say a related and second area for us was the need for a thorough model of macro demographic trends that affect the size of a religious nun population. So, you know, there's a lot of literature out there that says, you know, religious nuns are growing, they're going to grow indefinitely. And we have some demographic data there. Uh, but we wanted to pay attention to, you know, what are some of those countervailing forces that uh, might actually slow or reverse the uh, growth of religious nuns, or maybe even accelerate it. So things like immigration, birth rates, and so forth. And so uh, demographics is an important piece of uh, the gap within the literature we wanted to address in this book. Uh, a third, uh, both the third and fourth things actually come down to comparisons between Canada and the United States. We know a lot about religious nuns in the United States. We know a lot about, you know, the spiritual and secular meaning systems among nuns in the U.S., but less so in Canada. And so this gave us an opportunity to both understand Canada in its own right but then to compare that with the United States. And then fourth, in that comparative context, uh, lots of sociopolitical attitudes and behaviors that we know about nuns in the U.S., but less so in Canada. 
So again, this gave us the opportunity to explore that and to provide some comparisons. And then the fifth and final thing that stood out to us uh, pertained to the attitudes that exist among religious nuns, religious minorities, and religious majorities. You know, how do different religious groups and religious nuns view one another? How do they behave relative to one another? So all those kinds of things came about in our early conversations. We thought, you know, we should really write a book. We should bring together these quantitative and qualitative elements. And uh, none of the above is the result of those conversations. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about um, terminology for a moment. Um, you use the term religious nuns um, to refer to people who say they do not belong to any religion, but you nuance this category by identifying five different types of religious nuns. Um, I'm wondering if you could elaborate on these different types and the, the different types of religious nuns you outline in the book. Yeah, so uh, for your podcast uh, podcast listeners, uh, religious nuns, uh, the traditional sense of kind of uh, women in, in kind of covenants or, or in habits, uh, that's maybe what you're thinking of. It might be your kind of frame of mind. But we're using religious nuns, it's spelt differently, of the N-O-N-E variety. So these are individuals who say that they have no religion. So um, when they're asked in a survey or in a census, uh, you know, what is your religious affiliation? They say, we have none. And uh, yeah, so in that sense, there's, they share something in common in that uh, they have no religious belonging. They don't belong to a religious group or a tradition or an affiliation. Uh, that being said, there's a lot of diversity within that group. Uh, so there's other dimensions of religiosity. Uh, those who study the topic are kind of maybe familiar with this. There's dimensions of believing. There's dimension, uh, uh, dimensions of behavior, uh, as well as that kind of traditional religious belonging. And so what we find is that there's actually a variation amongst uh, the non-religious, in terms of what their beliefs are, uh, if they hold kind of religious or spiritual beliefs or other forms of beliefs, um, and their behavior. So do they kind of uh, pray? Do they meditate? Do they have any kind of spiritual or religious behavior, even though they don't necessarily belong to a religion? And uh, yeah, so we try and break that down in the book, uh, look at different types. Uh, you know, anytime you build these different kind of typologies or categories, there's limitations in terms of what you can measure uh, with quantitative and qualitative data. Uh, also, where you decide to draw the line, like who, who falls into one category and not another. Uh, in real life, that can be fluid sometimes. People can change identities, can shift their behaviors and beliefs uh, it, between contexts over the course of their lifetime. Uh, that being said, we still think it's worthwhile to kind of build the typology of different types of non-religious uh, to get a, a sense of what's out there and also, you know, how big are these groups at a given time when we take a snapshot uh, of the population. So, yeah, we see uh, five main subtypes, like you were saying, Lizzie. Uh, the first one is what we call involved seculars. So these are individuals who do not believe in God or a higher power, so that we refer to as non-believers, uh, and who are actually quite active in organized atheist, humanist, or secularist communities, uh, things like Atheist International, um, the, the Humanist Foundations, uh, you know, they were made quite popular at the early 2000s with uh, characters such as Richard Dawkins um, and Christopher Hitchens. And so groups like that um, do uh, engage some uh, of these non-believers that we call involved seculars, but they're a relatively small group. Uh, when we survey individuals on the rare occasion, we actually do ask questions, you know, how involved in these uh, secularist groups are you? Uh, we find that very few non-religious are actually actively involved, like regularly participating in their activities or even on their online or digital platforms. 
A much larger group that we find is what we call instead inactive non-believers. So that's our second type. Um, and those are individuals who don't necessarily hold traditional religious beliefs, including uh, in God or higher power, uh, but don't really do much about it either. <laughs> or kind of just like, meh, I don't really believe and I've never really thought that it was worth going to one of these groups activities. I've never really looked it up. It's just not part of my life and I do other stuff instead. Uh, so that we call that group inactive non-believers and that's a much larger group of the religious nuns uh, in both Canada and the US. Uh, out in BC, for example, where we have data on this, it's about half of the religious nun population uh, are these inactive non-believers. And then we have another uh, third large group uh, subtype, and that's uh, inactive believers. So these are individuals who do, who do believe in God or a higher power or who also hold other uh, religious beliefs, but again, who don't really do much about it. Uh, so aren't necessarily involved in spiritual activities, uh, don't think about it much in their daily lives, uh, don't necessarily go to religious services regularly. Um, so that's another big group of your uh, non-religious individuals. And then a fourth subtype is what we call the spiritual but not religious. So these are individuals who don't really have traditional religious activities like going to church or, or praying necessarily in the kind of traditionally religious sense. They're not really into that so much. And if you ask them, are you religious, they'll definitely say no. Um, but they do hold other kind of spiritual practices and beliefs. Um, they'll, for example, practice yoga and consider it a spiritual activity, not just a form of exercise. Um, you know, a whole, you see a whole variety here of kind of beliefs that they've gotten sometimes from Eastern religions, sometimes from other sources. And so they will self-identify as spiritual but not religious. And that's about, usually about a third, uh, maybe about a quarter to a third, depending where you are in North America, of your religious nun population. And then finally, our fifth subtype is what we call involved believers. So these are individuals who are actually quite active religiously, so will attend religious services relatively frequently, and who hold quite strong beliefs, but they won't necessarily identify with one religion, right? That, that's not so much uh, uh, part of their identity, but they are quite personally religious and actively so in the community. Um, some, uh, uh, for example, some evangelical, uh, evangelical Christians fall into this category. Uh, there's other individuals who, for a variety of reasons, say they have no religion, but are actually quite active on the behavior front. Um, but again, this, this fifth uh, group is also quite small. Uh, like the involved seculars, uh, there's not many, uh, maybe like one or 2% of religious nuns, but it's kind of important to point out um, that just because you don't, you say you have no religion doesn't mean that that necessarily translates into beliefs and behaviors as well. Um, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the data. Um, how many people identify as non-religious in Canada and the U.S., and how have these numbers changed over time, and how do they differ regionally, et cetera? Ah, yeah, numbers question. I love numbers questions. Uh, I'm I'm a I'm a big numbers person. Yeah. So in the book, we we kind of went and got uh, a series of different quantitative survey data that are good quality that are that are out there in uh, Canada and and the states and that ask questions about this. And what we found is that in 2016, uh, just under a quarter of Canadians, so about 23 percent, uh, and just under a quarter of Americans, so about 22 percent, uh, identified as having no religion, um, according to uh, each country's general social surveys, which are kind of big, good quality surveys that are run each year in each of the two countries. Uh, these rates have been on the rise in Canada since the early 1970s, uh, and in the U.S. Uh, since a bit later, since the early 1990s. Canada's rates of nuns uh, used to be higher than those in the U.S., um, 
But by now, the U.S. has actually caught up to Canada for the most part, because since uh, 1991, we've seen a real surge of these uh, non-religious individuals in the U.S., so that now, you know, the rate is about the same in both countries. Uh, these increases are especially generational increases. Uh, you'll find much higher rates of no religion amongst uh, Gen X and millennials. Uh, amongst millennials, it's over a third of millennials now in both countries say they have no religion. So there's kind of like an increase uh, across each generation, of, uh, especially amongst young adults. And there's also important regional divides uh, in these rates across Canada and the U.S. So, you know, it's you always we always lump these countries together when we're counting. But in fact, especially in Canada, uh, there's actually more important regional divides to kind of break down. Um, so religi uh, religious non-affiliation is least common. So is less is in a smaller portion of the population in places like Atlantic Canada, in Quebec, uh, as well as in the American South. Um, where less than a fifth of those populations uh, say they have no religion. And it's most common, so uh, the largest shares of non-religion are found on the West Coast in both countries. So in BC, rates of nuns uh, stand at 44%, according to the 2011 National Household Survey. At the big time, the last time, uh, about a fifth of the population was, was asked these questions in Canada. And the rates of nuns in the states of Washington and Oregon, so just south of the border of BC, are just below 35%, according to the 2014 Pew Religious Landscape Study. So we're going to get back to regional differences in a moment. So we're going to we're going to go back to that shortly. But before we do that, I'm just wondering if we could talk a little bit about methodology. Um, you mentioned this just briefly, but um, with regards to the surveys that you looked at. But I'm just wondering if you could explain to us how you acquired the data you examined in the book, and maybe more specifically, what we can learn from these large quantitative surveys, and what do these types of surveys overlook. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Joel and I are lucky to kind of be scholars in a time when there's a lot of freely available, good quality, open access survey data now. Uh, it's it's only a click away to download some of these big uh, quantitative data sets. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, that was not the case. So it would have been very difficult to do this kind of study. But for this book, um, I'm the kind of number cruncher. And I crunched a lot of freely available uh, data. Uh, posted online from different agencies, notably the Canadian and American General Social Surveys. So in Canada, those are run by Statistics Canada. Uh, in the States, it's a, it's a group of a research team that's been dedicated to running that survey every two years uh, for the past few decades, um, as well as uh, survey data from the Canadian, election, uh, Canadian and American Election Studies. So those are uh, surveys that are run every time there's a national election uh, in the country, as well as there's lots of good quality data that Pew Research Center, which is a nonprofit uh, research institute, puts out and makes available to us. And so we were able to crunch some of that as well to kind of look at findings, looked at new topics that hadn't been looked at uh, in this uh, these survey data before. So these data, uh, these quantitative data sets are good for giving us an overall picture of what's going on with general populations, right? It gives you a sense of kind of general trends, uh, you know, how many people say what uh, when you ask uh, different questions. Um, the advantage of these surveys is they have really good quality representative samples. So they're good estimates for adult populations, uh, general populations. Um, 
Uh, and they also, you know, can point out areas and demographics uh, where and among whom non-religion is more common, like I was just talking about uh, earlier on. So these qualitative data are also quite good for measuring associations between non-religion and other social attitudes and behaviors. That's their other main benefit. For example, um, you know, independent of age, we know that non-religious individuals have on average much more progressive or left-leaning attitudes on social political issues, issues like abortion, same-sex marriage, gender roles, the environment, immigration, and the welfare state, they tend to lean left on those issues. And we've been able to see that through these survey data. Individuals are not necessarily aware of this uh, themselves. You know, they're aware of their views on these uh, issues, but they're not necessarily always aware of how they compare to everyone else on them. So that's something you can see, not necessarily by asking uh, the individual in an in-depth uh, interview, but rather kind of measuring uh, these trends across uh, lots of people uh, in these larger surveys. But, you know, like all methodologies, quantitative data also has its limits. Um, these data can give us a sense of what's going on, but don't aren't very good at answering the question of why are we seeing this? Why are we seeing these trends? Why is it more popular among certain populations? Why do some people say they have no religion? Um, Right? They don't give us a sense of the people behind the numbers, uh, their stories, their biographic pathways uh, into how they became non-religious, uh, as well as the experiences that they have as being non-religious uh, in various social contexts. So that's why we made sure to complement the survey data in our book with uh, the in-depth interviews that Joel uh, conducted uh, in Alberta in 2012 and 13. So that brings us to, even though Sarah, you just sort of touched on touch on this a little bit. This brings us to my next question about um, the interviews you conducted. And I'm just wondering what insight did these interviews provide that differed from the surveys you examined? Yeah, one of the things that really excites us about this project is that we can bring the quantitative and qualitative pieces together. And one of the things that we definitely try to leverage here uh, are the qualitative interviews that uh, bring stories and narratives to real life. And so Many of our chapters will begin with those lived experiences, things that you don't necessarily capture in, uh, you know, data sets of thousands of survey responses, for example. Uh, and these stories and narratives really help us to account for the processes and the pathways for becoming a religious nun. So, for example, some people were raised in really devout religious homes. Well, what happened along the way that contributed to them now saying that they have no religion? Uh, the stories the narratives that come about from the interviews really help to answer those questions. And they help us to understand how they view members of other religious traditions. What were the experiences that uh, lay beneath some of those perspectives and, and experiences? So stories and narratives is really important. I think the second element are the open-ended questions and responses that you gain within qualitative research. So, you know, when, when I ask a question to a respondent, the very first thing that they say typically tells us something about uh, some of the most important things. Uh, so if you say, uh, you know, why did you leave your religion of your childhood behind? The initial things that come out of their mouth typically tells us something about what is most pressing for them, uh, the greatest priorities that contributed to those transitions, or perhaps the topics that they talk most about. Maybe they go on on a topic for five or 10 or 15 minutes, versus another topic they maybe spend one minute on. And that also tells us something about a level of importance to uh, a particular uh, subject area. So the, the qualitative interviews help us in, in that respect. And then finally, I would say that the qualitative interviews really helped us to uh, get at some of the context for the ways that people think and behave in the world. Uh, you know, understanding their social experiences with family or friends or schools or religious groups or media all of those things 
intersect with a person's life story and experience that uh, perhaps contributed to increased rates of religiosity at some point in their life or uh, decreased rates of religiosity in their lifetimes. And so uh, understanding those different social influences really come alive within qualitative interviews in ways that we just can't capture within the broad uh, macro level quantitative data. So my next question is a bit big and it really is the crux of the book. Um, so I, my apologies for asking such a large question, but yeah. um, why are increasing numbers of Americans and Canadians identifying as religious nuns? Yes, uh, we'll try to be as succinct in, in answering <laughs> this. Um, and and we, we devote the better part of a chapter to unpacking this. But I would say there are a range of macro and micro level variables. Uh, you know, as sociologists, we're paying attention to what are the large social forces and changes that are happening in society that contribute to uh, different rates of religiosity. So here we look at things like social context. You know, the fact that we're a, a more religiously plural society, socially plural. And we draw here on uh, classic theories like uh, Peter Berger and secularization theory, who asserted that the more religiously and socially and culturally plural a society is, the more difficult it is to maintain uh, a single, what he calls a plausibility structure. And in the context of religion, kind of this overarching sacred canopy that ties all people together. And so when you look at countries like Canada and the United States who have greater degrees of pluralism and diversity, it becomes difficult to maintain a single set of religious beliefs and practices. So you have those social changes. You have individualism that has given rise kind of through the Enlightenment period and the last few hundred years, uh, that as be people become more individualistic, they're less likely to uh, grant authority to religious groups, religious leaders. Uh, we've become a more rational society whereby we emphasize things like science and technology and, and logic. And uh, these expressions of rationality uh, for some can actually buttress up against religious uh, claims that are based on things that you can't necessarily empirically test and, and, and verify and see and so forth. And all these things kind of coalesce, they converge together at a societal level, whereby religion has lost some of the social authority that it once had. You know, religion was involved in law and politics and healthcare and education and all these different uh, spheres of social life. And, and in fact, this is probably one of the big differences between Canada and the U.S., is Canada is further along this trajectory whereby religion has far less social authority than it does uh, in the United States, or at least in certain pockets of American society. So you have all those social context fa factors in play. And then when you look at the micro-level variables, uh, parents and the family uh, are the greatest influencer over a person's uh, religious or non-religious identity, beliefs, behavior, involvement, and so forth. And so we track different things that have perhaps shifted and changed in family life uh, over the last half century or so in particular, such as parents giving their children the choice of whether or not they're going to attend religious services or not, or identify or not. Uh, and so you find these 12, 14, 16-year-old teenagers who are like, yeah, I'm, I'm out of here. And this is a shift. This is a shift because parents uh, didn't uh, formally value individualism or choice in the way that they give their children these days. Uh, and so it intersects with those larger uh, social factors. You see intellectual disagreement. You know, people say, 
oh, my religion's telling me I should believe these things, and yet my own experiences are telling me something else. Uh, and so there's this disagreement between what I'm taught I'm supposed to believe and what I actually believe. So you have uh, those kinds of disjunctions. You have social influences that people are exposed to, family, friends, media, etc., that progressively have contributed to people who have uh, diminished their level of religious involvement. Uh, and then you have things like uh, life transitions. You know, we're more mobile today than in previous generations. And anytime you move for work or school or what have you, uh, it breaks those social ties that you once had that perhaps bound you to a religious group. Uh, or you lose a family member, they, they die, and they were the main religious person within the household that brought you to religious services. Do you begin to see how all of these micro-level variables impact uh, the growth of those who say they have no religion? And probably the final thing that we would highlight, and this is a notable shift that we do pay attention to in the book, is the growth of those who are raised without any kind of religious socialization. So in previous generations, people may have been raised within a religious home, and then they left that religion somewhere during, say, their teenage or young adult years, maybe in rare cases later on in life. What we're finding now is those very same people, uh, if they have their own children, are raising their children without any kind of religious exposure or involvement. And so sociologists talk about this as a type of irreligious or non-religious socialization. And this is something that we're paying attention to moving forward. You know, might the growth of those who say they have no religion be increasingly fueled by those who have no religious background whatsoever? Uh, and that really is a byproduct and extension of previous generations of people who have progressively uh, moved away from religious roots, religious involvement, and so forth. So those are some of the things that we unpack. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if we can shift and talk a little bit about regional differences. We broached it a little bit before, um, but I want to unpack this further. So why do we see that some areas, um, such as the Pacific Northwest, for example, um, have higher percentage have a higher percentage of religious nuns than, in, than other areas um, in the U.S. and Canada? Yeah, so this is a topic I really like to focus on because, you know, we often consider Canada or the U.S. as kind of these big national entities uh, and we just report statistics or just kind of general data uh, for the two big countries. But in reality, there's huge regional divides uh, within each country. And some of those regional divides, uh, like, say, out west, uh, the west regions of the U.S. and Canada look more like um, than, say, uh, the west coast of the U.S. and the south of the U.S., right? So sometimes the national border isn't the kind of main border or divide here. There's actually kind of regions across North America that sometimes transcend those national borders. And each region has its own distinct history and culture and uh, that can often have an impact on how many people will say they have no religion and their kind of experiences of being non-religious in that area. Uh, so I'll take the example here. You know, I could go into each region. I'd love to. I, I really, I, in my other work, I focus a lot on Quebec. Uh, I have some colleagues who focus on the American South, which is really interesting as well. Um, but I'll take the example here of the Pacific Northwest. So say the West Coast of Canada, BC, as well as those states of Washington, Oregon, and the general kind of Pacific Northwest area, because this is the region in North America where there are the most uh, non-religious individuals, according to kind of pretty much all the data uh, we collect on the topic. The Northeast U.S. is also another hub of it, but the West Coast seems to be uh, the big player, especially that Pacific uh, Northwest area. 
Um, so like, as mentioned earlier, right, on both sides of the national border here, we find really high rates of non-religion. So amongst, uh, say, young adults, it's over half of young adults say they have no religion in the Pacific Northwest and BC area. Um, and these high rates of non-affiliation, they're not just found amongst, say, uh, many Chinese or Japanese immigrants, uh, populations that we also see high rates of people who say they have no religion, uh, either because they are non-religious or the kind of Western religion labels don't really um, correspond to their spiritual lives or their kind of family spiritualities that well. Uh, so amongst those immigration populations that are quite common uh, and present in on the West Coast, you do find high rates of non-religion, but you also find the high rates of non-religion amongst other populations, pretty much across all the different demographics in BC and the Pacific Northwest. You see these high rates of people who say they have no religion. So, you know, here, you know, Joel was talking about these kind of larger processes of secularization, of pluralization, of rationalization and individualization um, being at play. And they are in this area, processes found across, you know, the United States and Canada and, and Europe as well. And so those are at play to a certain extent across all the regions that we're studying uh, in the book. That being said, there's other more kind of local historical, political, social, and cultural influences that are also present. Uh, and the example that I'm going to use in the Northwest uh, religious and non-religious landscapes. So historically, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, one or a few churches uh, had difficulty in establishing a monopoly or an oligarchy in matters of religion. Uh, so this goes for Western Canada. This also goes for the Western United States, right? Protestantism arrived quite a bit later in that area uh, with the European as they moved west, um, you know, and for a period they could be found amongst a majority of uh, European settlers. Most of them were Christian. Most of them were Protestant at the time uh, from roughly about the mid 19th to mid 20th century. But that Protestantism was quite fractured in nature. There was lots of different groups uh, that were kind of arriving and trying to establish a presence out West, um, not only just Anglican, Methodist, or other liberal Protestant denominations, but also many evangelical groups uh, that still make up a substantial proportion today out West. Uh, and mixed with that, there was that kind of frontier mentality focused on mobility and resource extraction, um, political contestation between indigenous, British, and American groups uh, during that 19th and 20th. 20th century, uh, a physical and psychological distance from the rest of the continent, right? The West Coast was always seen as that kind of far away, the, the, front, the new frontier, um, and also a desire to be free of the establishment in all its forms. Um, and so when a lot of individuals arrived out West uh, back in the 19th century, European settlers, there was kind of like a saying like, oh, when you left your religion behind as you crossed the Rocky Mountains in the sense that you were free of the kind of old world stuff that was going on uh, out, further out East or in the central continent. And, uh, you know, this was a kind of new land of freedom, a new land to kind of do what you wanted to do and, and make your own way. And so all these kind of factors kind of ensured that organized religion didn't really get as uh, strong a foothold in that region uh, in the 19th century as it, as it did elsewhere in the United States and Canada. Compare it very quickly to Quebec, where the Catholic Church, uh, especially from about the mid-19th to mid-20th century, was the pillar of French-Canadian society. It was the only church, and it had a strong influence on kind of politics and society during that period. In fact, some argue that what defined the Pacific Northwest uh, and its exceptionalism 
uh, in matters of religion was most nobly what we call the irreligious experience of many of its residents. So these are historians like Tina Block and Lynn Marks uh, who have studied this out West. The Pacific Northwest uh, was to a certain extent born secular, if you want, according to their kind of studies, characterized by lower rates of regular church attendance among its population long before the 1960s. So this has a long history in the area. Religion never became really as institutionalized during the mid-19th to mid-20th centuries among a majority of the population in Washington, Oregon, and BC, uh, compared with uh, kind of more eastern and southern parts of the continent. And on top of that, there were large waves of Asian immigration that arrived that also had high rates of non-religion at the time, uh, among whom saying one had no religion was much more common, which also contributed to making non-religion even more socially acceptable on the whole uh, in that area, much uh, more than found elsewhere on the continent, even before the kind of mid-20th century. So consequently, with no one church or religious tradition having established deep roots with overall regional culture, and with individuals and family ties to religious groups often being more precarious uh, in the Pacific Northwest, religious affiliation wasn't really as resistant to decline in the Western regions of the United States and Canada from about the 1960s onwards, when the more general processes of secularization, pluralization, rationalization, individualization became really heightened in Western societies, right? In most other areas of North America, we see religious indicators starting to decline around the 1960s, uh, especially in Canada, but also to a certain extent in the U.S. Um, That decline started much earlier on the West Coast. Uh, Regional factors in the area appear to have led to earlier generational declines of organized religion in that uh, region. The American context does, does, however, seem to act as a bit of a buffer against this decline, though, uh, even in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, So the strong ties between Christian and American identity and the stigma attached to non-religion that persisted throughout the second half of the 20th century and still exists in many places of the U.S. today, to a certain extent, uh, much more so than, say, for example, in the Canadian context uh, for that same period, Maybe one reason why the rates of no religion in the American Pacific Northwest are a little bit lower than those in BC. So BC seems to be even further along in this process, if you will. So even though the region itself across the national border looks quite similar, there are still a a, a few national differences there. You know, so each each region has its own story of how it got to where it is now in terms of non-religion. Right? I could go on about this all day. I don't want to bore you guys too much with it, um, but we do get into it in the book. Uh, right? The Pacific Northwest story is just one amongst uh, many that exist. And added to that, there are demographic trends that might vary across North America Right? in areas where there's older populations. There's going to be a more religious population uh, in areas where there's younger populations, especially in urban centers. There's a less religious population. Uh, as well as rates of immigration uh, in areas where you get lots of non-Western immigration from world regions like South America, like Africa, like Southeast and South Asia, you're going to get higher rates of religious populations and thus lower rates of non-religious populations. So all these kind of factors come into play to kind of distinguish these regions from one another. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit more about the differences between um, religious nuns in Canada and the U.S., Um, you mentioned in the book, and perhaps this gap is is um, decreasing, but um, you mentioned, or it's mentioned that um, there are more religious nuns in Canada than the U.S. The process of um, folks identifying as religious nuns began earlier in Canada than the U.S. So I'm just wondering if we could unpack some of these differences between, um, yeah, between Canada and the United States. 
Yeah, so uh, it's it's a big part of what we do in the book is to compare the two nations, and there's lots of aspects, lots of fascinating uh, findings there. Uh, yeah, so in terms of actual rates of people who say they have no religion, yeah, now Canada and the U.S. are about the same, actually, uh, and that's changed since uh, pre-1990s when Canada had higher rates of non-religion. That being said, on other religious indicators, um, things like regular religious service attendance, um, prayer, beliefs in God, Canada still all scores lower uh, on those than, uh, than the U.S. So it is kind of, in that sense, defined as a more secular nation uh, than the U.S. and still is today. Um, and, and so there's, you know, that, that general difference. But uh, what else do we see in terms of how we distinguish the two nations? You know, we... The first kind of thing to mention here is that what was surprising is we found a lot of similarities uh, amongst the non-religious. There's a lot going on that's uh, quite similar in Canada and the U.S. And so it's, you know, even though I'll highlight some differences here, it's always important to keep in mind that, say, those five types of uh, non-religious individuals I was talking about earlier on, in terms of size of those five types, are actually quite similar across uh, both nations. Um, but what we did see was that generally Canadians have warmer attitudes towards atheists and cooler attitudes uh, towards more conservative-leaning religious groups, such as evangelicals, uh, than Americans do. That's been uh, noticed for a while, and we still see that today. So Canadians are more comfortable saying ha having an atheist as their neighbor or as their in-law when you ask them these kind of uh, social proximity questions in surveys. Um, and Americans are kind of not okay with atheists uh, just quite yet. Uh, they're still the least favorite group of Americans. Uh, uh, when you measure these things in surveys, they even fall below other minority groups that are quite disliked at the moment uh, as a general trend, such as Muslims uh, or those of the Jewish population. Those groups already score lower on people's attitudes towards them when you measure these things in surveys, but atheists score uh, even lower than that. Uh, whereas in Canada, that's not necessarily the case. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, another kind of thing that we notice uh, and we get into a bit into the book is that, you know, in Canada, again, there's kind of a different historical and cultural experience in the country, right? So there's been kind of changing ties between primarily English-speaking Western European nationalities and Protestantism as well as French Catholicism during the mid-20th century. Um, and these kind of changes right before kind of these, you know, what we call the WASP group, right? The white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, uh, Protestantism used to be quite strongly tied to kind of British national or British Canadian identity before the mid 20th century. But those kind of ties dissipated, uh, when the kind of British empire fell and kind of Canada moved more towards the kind of multicultural identity post 1960s. And so with that was that kind of strong link between kind of more ethnic white Protestant identity and British identity. And so kind of Christianity wasn't seen as important in that kind of national identity anymore. And the same thing happened in French-speaking Canada as well. Uh, around the 1960s with Quiet Revolution, uh, French-Canadian identity or Quebecois identity was no longer as strongly tied to Catholicism. And so the need to go to church every week to show that you were a good citizen uh, started to dissipate. Um, we didn't see those changes quite as much as in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., those ties continued for a lot longer and still, uh, in many ways, continue today, right? The fact of being kind of like a good, in quotation marks, American and being Christian, going to church regularly, right? You think of Homer Simpson and the Simpsons. Uh, even he was usually at church, right? <laughs> Despite all of his other faults, right? This kind of ideal version of what the American citizen looks like often is still tied in many kind of public discourses uh, with Christianity. And we don't see that as much in Canada anymore. And that 
that has a real impact on the kind of social environment and how comfortable people feel about saying they have no religion and actually, you know, having non-religious experiences in their environments with their family, with their friends and so forth. So that's kind of one of the reasons why we saw, saw that kind of delayed onset of non-religion in the United States. That being said, since the 90s, especially amongst the millennial generation, uh, that kind of social stigma tied to non-religion has, has not disappeared, but is declining. And so you do have a lot more people now saying that they have no religion. One of the things I found really interesting in the book was um, how you outline or you examine how... Um, how the experience of being a religious nun differs regionally, um, where in some places that can be a pretty precarious or um, taboo identity to assume publicly, I guess, um, or outwardly. So I'm wondering if you, if you could unpack that a little bit, how this experience for religious nuns differs um, depending on where one lives in North America. Yeah, so there are definitely indications of this, that religious nuns who reside in areas with higher concentrations of other non-religious individuals, say like in BC, the Pacific Northwest, or on the Northeast uh, in the US, um, they're likely to have uh, a more kind of distinct left-leaning and secular views. Uh, so for example, if you take issues like abortion or same-sex marriage, the religious nuns in the Northeast or the West Coast are even more left on these issues uh, than already the quite progressive uh, non-religious in the South or in other parts of the US or Canada. And so there seems to be even more kind of extremes on that front uh, in an area where you find a lot of other non-religious. They're kind of all kind of supporting those views and you tend to be even more left uh, on those sociopolitical attitudes. Um, as well as uh, things like spiritual behaviors tend to be less common amongst nuns in areas where there's lots of non-religious, uh, like things like, you know, still holding certain beliefs in God and life after death. There's still some nuns who do, but there's less of them in areas where it's more common to be non-religious. So you see they're kind of, if you see it as a process, they're kind of further along this process than uh, the non-religious in other areas uh, who uh, are not as numerous, uh, say like in the South US or on the East Coast of Canada. Um, that on the flip side, so the non-religious who only recently disaffiliated or who are in this kind of more minority secular context um, tend to still reflect some of the spiritual and political attitudes and behaviors of the more religious past, uh, of their more religious family past and of their surroundings as well. And so they're kind of further back on that process. Um, don't necessarily have to see it as a process, but it's just kind of like hopefully an easy way to kind of visualize it in your mind of kind of these different groups are, are kind of in a more secular area, or show even kind of less religious behaviors and more left-leaning attitudes. And in contexts where religious groups have a, a kind of a major public presence, so they're very vocal, a lot of politicians are talking about God a lot, about faith a lot, uh, the non-religious are often more likely to experience social stigma in profound ways. Um, it depends on the major religious group in question, but like say in areas where evangelical Christianity is very common in the U.S., is very popular, say like in the South U.S., um, non-religious individuals get a lot of stigma uh, from the people around them, but also in the media and from politicians, for example. And because of that, they often feel the need, um, and which will translate into action to seek out settings to gather with other religious nuns. So in that case, we'll see often higher rates of involved seculars uh, in areas where uh, the secular group overall is smaller. So say in the South US, you actually get these kind of strong counter secular reactions uh, to kind of try and 
win over or take up a bit more space because they're facing such stigma. And so they feel the need to kind of form groups and to, you know, in quotation marks, come out as atheists in these groups. Um, something that you see when they're kind of in these minority uh, non-religious contexts and that you don't see so much in an area, say like BC, where being non-religious is so normalized that no one even thinks about it, right? It's not contested identity usually. And so most people don't really uh, consider it a problem or a need to get together with others who are like-minded to kind of uh, share a social support. It's kind of less common. In, uh, in these uh, more secular areas. All right, so these observations reinforce a long-standing sociological tenet that one's localized social experiences with family, with friends, with neighbors, with coworkers, at school, with politicians, and with the media really shapes one's sense of self and others, so that being non-religious in one area is not necessarily the same as being a non-religious in another. I, I want us to unpack, and we've alluded to it throughout the interview, but I want us to unpack this um, tension between religious nuns and religious people um, that you sort of outlined in the book. Um, so how do these two groups perceive one another and why? Well, we know sociologically across many different social groups and categories that groups of people tend to feel more positive towards others who they perceive to be more like themselves. And they tend to be less positive towards those that they believe hold rather different attitudes and behaviors to them. And so when we unpack that sociological uh, concept and, and, and theory uh, in this setting, say between atheists and evangelicals, this is where we see some of the strongest differences emerge uh, in both Canada and the United States, where these two groups, atheists and evangelicals, hold this strong disdain for one another. It's more notable in the United States than it is in Canada, though it is still present here in Canada. And much of this has to do with the historic privileged position that Christians and namely evangelicals have held in the United States. And the narratives that many Americans tell about their history as the United States is this Christian nation. It's a, a beacon on a hill for the rest of the world that's infused with strong Christian language that uh, despite the formal church-state separation, in the United States founding documents is a narrative that continues to persist across American society. And so as religious nuns have grown and as atheists in particular grow in size and gain momentum, there has been this, I would say, this battle for cultural authority, uh, legitimacy, uh, dominance within society. And these kinds of polarized tensions are magnified, as, as Sarah was talking about, in the different regions across Canada and the United States. So where you have uh, growing populations of religious nuns where they have the numbers, so to speak, and perhaps they are gaining cultural legitimacy, say in the Pacific West, uh, then there is a, a, a gaining momentum there that almost uh, contributes to, say, evangelicals or other Christian groups who feel like a, a marginalized minority. And the inverse is true, say, in the deep, uh, deep south of the United States, where atheists feel like this marginalized minority relative to this uh, strong evangelical hegemony across society. So those things on the whole definitely stand out to us, different social boundaries. When you peel the, the onion back a little bit more, you find that religious nuns tend to hold more positive views overall toward groups that they perceive to be more inclusive. So groups like Buddhists or Hindus or Jews uh, they tend to have more favorable views and the perception, though it's not always accurate in, in reality, a perception is that these groups are tolerant, inclusive, welcoming to diversity, uh, and so forth. 
Uh, and by extension, religious nuns hold less positive views towards those religious groups that they believe to be are highly exclusive. So evangelicals, Muslims, Mormons, these more conservative uh, religious groups, uh, religious nuns have a less favorable view toward. When you look at the other end of the continuum, among those who are actively involved in different religious groups, uh, in both Canada and the United States, they generally have more positive views towards Christians and Jews. Uh, these groups that have deeper roots and traditions in both nations, they, they become more normalized, I would say, over time. Uh, and active religious folks tend to have less favorable views, as already noted, towards religious nuns, towards atheists, uh, as well as to Muslims as well. These groups that are perhaps less, uh, less embedded, less entrenched, less familiar within the historical self-understandings within these two nations. And so these kinds of social boundaries rise to the surface among both the religious and the non-religious, and they play themselves out differently based on who the quote-unquote other is uh, within their frame of reference. Toward the end of the book, you introduce um, your readers to the concept of deep equality. Um, I'm wondering if you could explain what you mean by this and what implications it would have for religious nuns. Yeah, so we're trying to grapple with, you know, when you have this polarization and these different views toward one another, what does that look like for a social fabric? How do you actually exist and coexist alongside one another? And so here we borrow this concept of deep equality from uh, Dr. Lori Beeman at the University of Ottawa. And uh, Beeman is well known for uh, looking at uh, religious diversity that increasingly accounts for the presence of non-religious folks within a diverse landscape. And how do we account for non-religion within those diversity discussions? And she talks about diversity not so much being a problem that needs to be solved. This is often the ways in which um, the media, many across society in general, and even some academics speak about diversity. And so rather than looking at it as a problem to be solved, deep equality captures this idea whereby individuals and groups uh, who focus on equality as a lived process in and through our daily interactions. Equality is not something that can be handed down from on high. It's not a policy uh, that uh, thou shalt do this. No, deep equality is something that you live and experience in your own homes, with your family, with your friends, with your neighbors, with your coworkers. And so deep equality is, is really this mutual focus between people who might view the world differently, behave in different ways, who uh, may still have shared behaviors and perspectives in common. And as you focus on those shared commonalities, uh, you also acknowledge and respect where you might differ in the process. And in this, uh, Beeman's very clear to talk about how in a deep equality context, individuals and groups need to abandon their claim to rightness or that they hold some truth from a transcendent authority. And our observation here, we don't necessarily just altogether embrace the deep equality narrative when it comes to a lived reality. Uh, when it comes to religious nuns, our own assessment and some of our reflections near the end of the book uh, is that these kinds of ideas for deep equality are particularly difficult for those on the extremes. Uh, so some segment of the atheist population, as well as the evangelical population, who do actually hold beliefs that their view are right and that others ought to believe their beliefs and practices. There's clear lines in the sand between right and wrong. Uh, 
Um, how does that deep equality actually come to the fore when you have these more extreme cases and views and perspectives? And so we, we grapple with this question. What does deep equality possibly look like for religious nuns? And uh, we ultimately land with some kind of sense that at a societal level, our conversations about religious diversity need to include the role and place of religious nuns. When we talk about religious diversity in education or politics or law or health, we need to increasingly account for religious nuns within those conversations. That deep equality is not just about religious diversity, it also accounts for non-religion within the process. And, and this is an evolving space um, and, and paying attention to how deep equality is practiced in these spaces between the religiously affiliated and unaffiliated is really one of the springboards that our, our book adds to some of the research that Lori Buman has given to uh, of possible avenues for future research. And uh, our, our hunch and our sense is that these two extremes, it's very unlikely between the atheists and evangelicals or some segment of these populations. It's very unlikely that we'll see deep equality as envisioned by uh, Buman and others. But those closer to the middle, those who are perhaps less committed or antagonistic to begin with, are more likely to see deep equality in practice, such that you could actually be an evangelical or an atheist or any number of other religious groups or type of religious nun and absolutely practice deep equality. And it's probably those who are uh, closer to the middle, uh, less oppositional, less polarizing, uh, less antagonistic within their beliefs and practices who are uh, most likely to live into this idea of deep equality. So I have one final question before um, we conclude. Um, I'm just, and it's a, it's a bit broad, so hopefully we can, um, we can work through this together. What can we learn about contemporary religion in the U.S. and Canada by studying religious nuns? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, well, I think one of the things, and maybe Sarah and I will tag team on this, I think one of the things that stands out about contemporary religion is that um, the social context very much matters for how we see ourselves and how we interact and relate with one another. And contemporary religion and contemporary social context is drastically informed by media, social media, technology, uh, public and political and social discourse, etc. And the growth of religious nuns, the perceptions of religious nuns, both among and towards themselves, uh, along with across religious and non-religious contexts, is very much informed and infused by these changing social narratives around us. And uh, to fully understand religion and contemporary social life, one needs to understand how those social narratives uh, are amplifying different perceptions toward oneself, how we see ourselves, and how we see one another. And so I think this discussion of religious nuns really raises that to the surface. It is a relatively new phenomena in much of the modern Western world this growth of those who are leaving religion behind, those who are raising their children without uh, religion, kind of en masse, uh, I think is highlighting and amplifying some of those social changes. And, uh, yeah, Sarah, I don't know if there's anything that you would add there. Yeah, just that 
you know, non-religion seems to be some uh, a phenomenon that's here to stay, at least for the foreseeable future, even with everything going on now with COVID-19, uh, from all indications that we can get from the data, is that those who say they have no religion and who are, you know, relatively secular in their beliefs and their behaviors, um, these individuals now form an important uh, proportion of the population, and they're not going away. It's, it's if anything, it looks to be, amongst younger uh, demographics, looks to be something that's going to persist, uh, at least uh, for the years and decades uh, to come you know obviously sociologists are not good at predicting the future so don't don't hold me to that uh, we've <laughs> we've had some bad experiences in the past along with uh, other scholars in lots of disciplines uh, aren't not usually great with the future predictions but it, it seems like it's a phenomenon here to stay right when uh, I sometimes I'll be speaking to religious leaders who, who really think it's everyone's gonna go back to church uh, in a few days or a few weeks uh, I kind of have to break it to them that that may not be what it seems. These are now kind of ingrained social identities. We are seeing individuals who are raised with no religion in their childhood and so don't even see religion as a possibility uh, of something to turn towards. Uh, you know, they have other things in their lives and they're happy with those lives and they find their lives meaningful. And so, you know, now, so whenever you talk about the religious landscape now, you have to factor in this kind of non-religious population, this coexistence, uh, this uh, interdynamics between the two. And I think that's really where we're headed. Religion's not going to disappear either uh, in the near future. And so it's really this kind of coexistence now, this kind of shared social spaces between those who are kind of more and less religious and and what, and and that's going to have kind of profound implications for societies moving forward. So to conclude, I have one final question for you both. Um, What are you folks working on now? Well, uh, there's two things I'm I'm tied up with uh, right now moving forward. Uh, one, both Sarah and I are tied to a larger national project, actually an international project on non-religion in a complex future. And uh, so there I'm particularly interested in uh, conversion and interaction narratives between nuns and uh, religious folks. So uh, say those who are raised in religious households who become religious nuns or the inverse, those who are raised religious nuns who actually convert to a religious group. Uh, what's at work there? Uh, how do they understand those processes? And then at a larger macro level, paying attention to, with great interest, to the education and diversity pieces. You know, how does polarization or perceptions across different groups or deep equality play out in the space of education and diversity accounting for both religion and non-religion? So that's one of the projects I'm part of. And the other one, uh, and very different from this, uh, I'm also the director of the Flourishing Congregations Institute here at Ambrose University in Calgary. And we look at uh, Christian congregations across Canada uh, where there are signs of life and vitality, uh, which is actually a a rare story in light of all the things we've been talking about here about religious nuns and trying to better understand sociologically uh, why is it that some groups seem to be thriving within this broadly secular context? Uh, How do we explain uh, flourishing in in various forms? uh, And what can we learn in those those are the two main projects I'm working on at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this question. Uh, circumstances have changed, right? So uh, I, I managed to buy disinfectant wipes this week, and that was my major achievement for the week. <laughs> given everything that's going on. But uh, yeah, like Joel, I'm involved with a number of projects. We're both really excited about this non-religion and complex future. This is a project led by Laurie Beeman. So it's kind of touching on these concepts of deep equality, of non-religion. Within that big international project, I'm looking, I'm hoping to focus more on kind of the non-religious experiences of kind of more minority groups. You know, 
know we know a lot about people who say they have no religion who are kind of more white uh, who are from Christian backgrounds for the most part uh, even though they say they have no religion now they come from families who, who were tied to especially uh, liberal Protestant groups in the past um, but I want to look at other groups say like your secular Muslims uh, indigenous religious nuns black atheists uh, what are their experiences of non-religion are they similar are they quite different uh, what does it mean to be uh, non-religious uh, given those family and social contexts uh, so you know within Canada so call it uh, the secular diaspora if you want but also outside of Canada and other countries uh, that's kind of hopefully the next step in where a lot of this study of non-religion is headed and I'm also uh, always uh, have been for a number of years and still uh, interested by the concept of polarization so there's some big international data sets that have just come out on religion the European values sur- uh, studies uh, the international social survey program they've just come out with survey data across a huge number of countries uh, on religion and non-religion and so I want to kind of delve into this issue of religious polarization with that new data so excited about that yeah well thank you so much to the both of you for taking the time to speak with us about your work Um, it was a pleasure reading and talking to you about your book Um, none of the above non-religious identity in the U.S. and Canada is out now thank you great thanks Lindsay (laughs) 